I'm going to invite you to take the word this morning and turn to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. And as you're turning there, I want to introduce briefly the message and then get right to it this morning. But I want us to look this morning at the authority to obey. The authority to obey. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 5 of Ezra, and then we'll work through the entire chapter and into chapter 6 as we consider the message this morning. But let's begin by going to the Word and hearing from the Lord. Ezra 5.1 records, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, In the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar, Bozonai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this house? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask this morning that you will reveal yourself in power and might in this time. That by your spirit, you will illumine our hearts to the truths of your word. That you'll penetrate the dark areas of our life where doubt, where disbelief remains. And you'll turn us to look to your Lord Jesus. And in every way, we will believe. Hope against hope, even. We will trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the word of God awakens the exiles who've returned from Babylonian captivity. And once they've come back in the first four chapters, we see that they begin to pick up some of the work and they get the altar rebuilt and the the footing of the temple gets reestablished. But but in that instant, chapter three records that that the, the younger generation had never seen anything this glorious. And man, they were just exuberant and over the top with some radical celebration. And the older generation was celebrating, but in a very different way, they were weeping. Because they knew that what was rebuilt was not going to be as great as what had been built and ultimately destroyed. But the Lord said that their voices came together and declared one testimony to the people of the land. But the people of the land didn't like it. And so the opposition arose in chapter 4 and came and threatened them. And because the people listened to the opposition, we hear that they walked away from the work. On that day, they put their tools down or they took them home and they stopped doing the Lord's work and they gave their ear and their heart to the voices of those that were around them. But we also see that that God rose up Haggai and Zechariah and through these prophets, he began to encourage and strengthen the people with the word of consider your ways and by the visions given in Zechariah to, to lay out the hope of what God was doing and had done for them. And so we see in chapter 5, they, they had returned to the work. And the work was strengthening and momentum was building because God was strengthening His people to engage in His 
work. And so they've returned. There was a unity among the the people, Uh, not just a unity in the work. Surely that was there too, but there was a unity of heart and of mind and of spirit. And they were being encouraged each and every day in the work. And so when the exiles had restarted the work in Ezra 5, there was a difference in their obedience this time. Something that was more distinctive that had not been present before. They were trusting here in God's authority and not their own authority and not their own ability or will, but rather the local governors here again we see in verse 3 and, and they return, Tatanai and all of his minions, and, and they're going to return to those old tactics of threat and, and insinuation and trying to I- impede the work. And they ask two very interesting questions that they confront them with. Who gave you authority? And who is it that is doing this work? We want some names because we're going to turn them in to the king. But verse 5 Verse 5 is such a, a sweet turn of events that shows the faithfulness of God. When the opposition arises, verse 5 says this, that there was somebody else overseeing the project this time. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter to them. What a precious refrain of reminder of what God was doing and where He was in the midst of all of it. You see, the leaders led God's people to return to work because by the preaching of the Word, they remembered the promise of God and that it was His authority that they had returned to begin with and it would be His authority under who the work would continue. Friends, I want you to be encouraged today and hopefully helped in understanding this That your obedience to serve God is by His authority. That you might accomplish His purpose for His glory by your life in the world. Your obedience to serve God is by His authority. When you look at verse 6 of chapter 5 and you continue, you capture the letter that they sent to Darius and that they were tattletaling, if you will, on what's taking place. And, and consider what it is that transpires in verses 6 through 10. We see that the letter records that the governor and his counterparts were writing to King Darius and they were trying to arouse the fears of the king again to make him aware of the work. They were putting those insinuations and asking those questions that said more than they really saw for. And in all of this, they were trying to cause Darius to again inflict a heavy hand to stop the exiles from their work. And and then they they thought that, well, we'll just give it to them in their own words. And so verses 11 through 16 records the answer that Israel gave to why they were there and how all of this came about. And their response forms for us a a testimony of of God's direction for them that reveals where they understood their authority and their hope and their trust to rest. And and it also just shared that Cyrus was the one who had made provision uh, practically for the resourcing of the work. And so when the response comes, Tatanai is hoping he'll get permission to shut the work down again. But actually what his request does is triggers Darius to look a little deeper into the record and he finds Cyrus's decree and he says, actually, you need to be quiet and sit down. They're supposed to be doing this. It's interesting when they get the letter back, you can tell those local governors, they weren't impressed and they weren't happy. 
They didn't like Darius anyway. They were just trying to use him for their own ends and their own means. Derek Kidner notes at this point in Ezra, he says this, from this point onward, right through the very end of Nehemiah, there's conflict. And nothing that is attempted for God will now go unchallenged. And scarcely will a tactic be unexplored by the opposition. Friends, he's right. And you need to take heed to these words as you prepare your life for a service to God. Any place or any life that is without the enemy's opposition is probably absent of God's mission. Where mission is not served, there will be no authority present. And where no authority is present, no obedience will be rendered. And where no obedience is rendered, there will be no need for the enemy to be concerned. The enemy, along with your sin, guarantees opposition to the mission. And guarantees opposition to your obedience and that these things are inevitable. And though the efforts to thwart your obedience and thwart your serving God's mission will be unceasing, you must remember that there is no power that ever threatens God's authority in your life. None. You see, friends, the first issue of obedience to serving God and to serving His mission is always a question of authority. Who sent you? Who do you think you are? What are you doing? See, Christians are called to walk in obedience to God's command by faith. Why? By His authority. Jesus modeled this life under the Father's authority in His ministry on the earth when He tells us in His own words that He submitted to the Father to only speak the words that the Father gave Him to speak and only do the work that He was given to do. When Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, He tells us that that the Holy Spirit will speak the words that He has given Him to speak. And of course, Jesus' last words that we are all so familiar with, just before He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, He reminds us of what authority we go in that says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, whatever comes next doesn't really matter. Because of what came before. We like to use the word sent. And this is a biblical word too. It is a reference to a life that is lived under authority. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. And Christ's followers live sent as ambassadors, the Apostle Paul says, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ambassadors don't show up to represent their own agenda. Ambassadors are there to represent the agenda of the one who sent them. And you see, the way we live our lives in the world indicates the authority under which we've placed our life. Sent in Jesus' name denotes God's authority over your life. And that's required for obedience to His mission. There will be no obedience to God's mission without first submitting to His authority in your life. For the life of obedience by faith to serve God's mission is ordained by God's authority. And what is ordained by God's authority will be unhindered, though not unopposed to accomplish God's will that He has purposed to be accomplished. You know, one misconception about Christianity and a confusion that in my pastoral ministry experience a lot of Christians hold is that they have to try to obey God in their own strength. God tells them something to do, they've got to go figure out how to do it and when to do it and why to do it and all those kinds of things. 
And so they give themselves to what they can accomplish instead of what God has commanded by faith and, or what God has called them to by faith. Some of you are wrestling with your call and how God wants to direct and steer and, and command the rest of your life. And when we have this misconception or confusion, we work out of a sense of ought to do. We work out of a sense of what I am able to do. We work out of a sense of what it might be that will receive other people's applause that will affirm what I can do. But friends, when we serve God this way, we obey Him in our own strength. We we are absent of faith. Intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't really matter. Faith is unnecessary when we confine the work of God to these parameters, to our capacity and ability. We allow our own ability or our own understanding of what could be or what might be to limit us. Surely God meant this. He looked at me. He wouldn't have said that. We allow our fear to control us. But, you know, if I do that, Lord... We also allow opposition to stop us. But this is not how God designed our obedience or our service to operate. The life of a Christ follower is ordained. It's authorized by God. And so we live under God's authority to trust His power in us to accomplish His purpose for us by His work through us. This is the work of God. What I want you to see today in our short time together is four blessings of God's authority on your life that anchor our lives To live in humble submission and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these come from the exile's testimony. The first one is in verse 11. The first half of verse 11. And the first blessing is this. When we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of our new identity. Listen to these exiles who for not just years, but at this point decades, had struggled understanding who they were, why they were there, and what in the world was going on. And the governor Tatanai in his letter to Darius says, this was their reply to us. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. What does that even mean? I'm sure he was writing and thinking. But to them, it meant everything. You see, when they forgot who they were, they went about their merry way living for self. And that's why God had to send his prophets to call them out of their slumber. But when they remembered who they were, they returned to the work that God had given them to. A right understanding of our identity as Christians is essential for our living under God's authority. And until you rest in your identity in Christ, you will continue to work to earn God's favor or worse yet, people's applause. No matter how well we perform, we cannot obey God outside of His authority. And doing God's work will never win the accolades of man. Too often we define or think about obedience as being compliance to rules. But friends, rebellion against God, which fuels all disobedience, is not first of all about outward action, but inward rejection. See, I know this. You're looking at a professional rebel. When I grew up, I just had this part in my heart that I I didn't understand, but here's what I knew. If I was told, Lane, you're not going to do that. Oh, really? Watch. Lane, you have to go do this. No, no, that would be an overstatement. I don't have to. Fortunately, my my father was faithful to, to show me where all sin leads, what death felt like, particularly on the posterior And so I haphazardly say, lightheartedly, but very seriously, I'm a professional rebel. I've been paid with the debt 
of where it would lead by my father. You see, friends, before you rebel against God in your action, you've already rebelled in your heart's inclination. So if that's what rebellion is, obedience then is first not about outward compliance or conformity, but rather about inward orientation to the presence of God, to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ by His Spirit, to His power, to His peace, to the pleasures of God at all times within us. We are never more fully identified nor completely aligned with God than when our heart is full to overflowing of Him. You know, Jesus demonstrated this and He taught how His obedience was always from the Father's authority in His earthly ministry. And He showed through that how His identity determines and resources His obedience and His mission and sources His strength for most, uh, uh, for His obedience. And even if you look at the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before His arrest and, and subsequent trial and crucifixion, it was a surrendering to the authority of the Father. Nevertheless... Not my will, thy will be done. You see, the blessing of our new identity in Christ is that before anything else, we must trust in the great work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ to remake us in Him, that we can understand what He has ordained for us. The second blessing we find in the second part of verse 11, and it's this, when you live under God's authority, you live in the blessing not only of a new identity, but in the blessing of a new perspective. Look at the second half of the verse. They said, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. You know, friends, nothing is more dangerous, but far too common than for Christians to believe that what God is doing now is in some way disconnected from what he's always been about doing, or what he did back then isn't what he's still about today. We draw great encouragement and we draw great strength in knowing that we join God in His redemptive work, that He's always been about this and, and He has determined for us what we are to do. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And this new perspective, it, it reorients our whole life. I mean, everything changes because of Jesus Christ. And Paul teaches exactly how this happens, not only intellectually and effectually, but practically in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 16, when he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. There's a, there's a conclusion we've reached, a conviction we've reached. What is it? One has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. This is the defining conviction of conversion. His death was my death, therefore his life becomes my life. I am his, and he is mine. So verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ in this way, we regard Him thus no longer. You see, friends, the new creation God has made of us causes us to believe something new about Jesus Christ. And because we hold a new perspective of who He is, we hold a new perspective of all things, beginning with ourselves, but extending to the whole world. Have you ever had something happen to you that causes you to see everything differently? 
In 2006, I was uh, coming off of a breakfast meeting, and man, I'd been chugging coffee, and uh, I was about a year and a half into our church plan, and I was cranking out what needed to happen. I was actually on the phone driving back to Ozark from Springfield, and I was talking to the guy that was leading our children's ministry at the time, and we were kind of hashing it all out before he went in. He was a teacher at the time, and so I'm sitting there, and, and in that day, when you left Highway 60 to go south on 65 out of Springfield, some brilliant individual put train tracks across the interstate. And so you could either lose or stop. And I chose to stop because a train was coming. But the, the, the train was moving so slowly as it typically did that the arms had not yet fallen. And as I spoke on the phone, a one-ton construction truck came and at 70 miles an hour hit me straight on. It shot me across the train tracks, over the guardrail, and down into a ravine, into the ditch. He nailed me. Fortunately, I was able to take control of the situation and I got out of my truck and I picked up my phone and I called my wife and I said, hey, babe, I, I just need you to know I've been in a car wreck. I'm OK. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. Do you need me to come get you? No, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. 30 seconds later, I called my wife. Hey, babe, I just need you to know I've been in a car wreck. I'm not hurt. Everything's fine. Don't worry. Do you need me to come get you? No, I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. 45 seconds later, I called my wife. Hey, babe, I just need you to know I've been in a car wreck. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Stop calling me. I had no idea what I was doing. I was wandering around down in this grass field. Fortunately, I had reverted to some old redneck roots. I had ripped my shirt off for some reason. <laughs> I am bare chested. Not something anyone should have to endure. I think I called my wife eight times and repeated the same thing to her every time. Four hours later, I came to in the emergency room. And all I could think was, I drank so much coffee at breakfast this morning and all they gave me was this pan. And there's a four hour... That's okay. I'm going to let you... Yeah, that's a good one. I'll take the laugh. There's a four-hour block of time in my life that I can't remember. I have no recollection of. But here's what I do remember. For three to four weeks after that, I couldn't even stand up without putting both hands on my head and picking my head up. And when I went to bed at night, I had to sit down, grab my head, because if I didn't, it'd just go... I had no strength in my muscle. I remember sitting there and... I was in rehab and I would go in an electrical shock and they'd light you up, you know, and you come out of that kind of shaking. And then they put you in on the bands and you have to do all these little exercises. I sat there one day and it was me. And this time I'm 36 or so years old. Uh, I was actually young at that time. Um, and, and there was a man next to me who was definitely in his mid 90s. And we're doing the same band workout. <laughs> the Lord, this early? This soon? Am I done? I don't remember. But I can tell you this. When someone tells me they've been in a car wreck, someone tells me they've had an incident like that occur, I am all attuned. Because I understand now how difficult that can be. You see, friends, because of Christ, we, we no longer live for the accolades or the applause nor the reward of the world. We live for the one who died for all. Because we know who He is and we know what He's done. And when we live under God's authority, we live in a blessing, 
of a new perspective that changes everything about the way we see, the way we understand, the way we respond because of who He is, because of what He's done, because of what He's done, what He's doing, and how it is that He's working in us to accomplish His purposes in the world. The third blessing found in verses 12 through 15, when we live under God's authority, we live in the blessing of redemption. The blessing of redemption. Verses 12 and 13 says, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, this is part of the exile testimony, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people of Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And let the house of God be rebuilt on this site, it says in verse 15. It reminds me of that hymn, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. However, now I see. There is this blessing of redemption that, that comes to our life because of Jesus Christ that changes the narrative, not just of what shall be, but even our understanding of what has been. If Ezra tells us anything, it reminds us that God does great things through His people, not because His people are great, but because He is great. God was the one rebuilding this temple. And the exiles looked back at this point on their whole life, and their testimony was what? That, you know what, we've come to realize, even in the hard times, God's disciplined hand was upon us, and He was in the process of redeeming us. We are the reason that we got taken to Babylon, but He is the one that took us there. He is the one that has brought us back. Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, everything was being rewritten here, friends, because of Christ, because of the work of God. His will and His purpose and the people that were sent into exile and that He had brought back to serve His mission. Why did God do this? Because God is a redeeming God. He returns value to that which has been stolen, has been offered up and given away. And, and the Bible tells us He sent Jesus as a propitiation for our sin debt. And by the payment of Jesus' blood, He rescues to reconcile us to Himself. And, and now that we've been reconciled, He redeems us to, to serve the glorious mission of the name of Jesus Christ in the world, in our day and in our time. God redeems for the glory of His divine purpose in Jesus Christ. Not just for us. Not just because we want a better life or any of those measures, but for His divine pleasures. And this is the answer the Israelites gave of the Lord's work. It shows their trust in God and in His authority. Instead of being angry about the past, instead of being angry about God's discipline, they saw God's redemption in it. Friends, when we live outside of God's authority, His work becomes more of a root of anger instead of seed of redemption. And when you live under God's authority, everything serves His divine purpose of redemption. I mentioned that I was a professional rebel just a moment ago and, and that the inclination of my heart had been so much of what I knew it shouldn't be and, and so long I even knew it shouldn't be that and didn't care. I don't mention that because I'm proud of it, but I can never forget it. Why? Because of Christ and His work in me. I tell you, when I went back to my 10-year high school reunion, 
I'd already surrendered to ministry. I'd finished my seminary education and, and I was um, uh, uh, pastoring a small church not far from where I went to high school. And, and so when I went back to this 10-year reunion, kind of that, uh, I don't think there's one that's not awkward. And we all kind of understand that. Some of you are preparing for that likely and God bless you. I thought, though, at that point, God had called. I knew he'd called me to ministry and I was already pastoring. But I began to think it might be like a, a, a ministry of signs and wonders. Because when I went back to the 10-year reunion, people heard what I was doing. They just started falling out as I walked through the room. They couldn't believe it. Why? Because where God had me now was nothing like where I had been before. And that's not a point of pride, friends, but it is a point of testimony. Of the great work that God has done in his redemption. And, and it causes me not only to look at my own life and go, God, what are you doing right now? Because there's still times I don't agree and don't like. I wish he would have chosen another way. But I know I need to submit. And I want to trust until understanding comes. I ask you, how do you understand God's work in your life? When you think of your past, when you think of the hard lessons that you've learned, maybe you're in the midst of one right now. When you think of the way that people attack you, when you think of the way people betray you, do you get angry and bitter at God? Or do you turn and go, you know, Lord, I've been there. It's not worth revisiting. I want to know what you have for me here do you see God working in all things because you're convinced He is working your redemption? We're so fast to herald Romans 8.28 and so slow to believe it when we're living it. If obedience and mission were determined by our ability or capacity, God would be limited by His people. But friends, God does not have a mission for His people. God has a people for His mission. Don't get this wrong. What God wants to do through you is bigger than you. It's beyond you. It's bigger than your ability. It's even bigger than your imagination. But when you live under His authority, He empowers you to serve His purpose by the blessing of your redemption. The fourth blessing we see here, verse 16, is the blessing of perseverance. Perseverance. Friends, I'll conclude quickly. Living under God's authority is the key to perseverance. When we remember all that God has promised, we are strengthened to stay the course. And the longer you serve and the longer you live, I'm becoming convinced probably the more challenging that will become. We're strengthened to stay the course, to persevere in all God has called us to until the work is finished. Let this house be rebuilt. Does this, never, does this mean you never want to quit or give up? No. In ministry, that's what you call Monday. But God's authority anchors our confidence. He anchors our hope. And He anchors our trust. That what He starts, He finishes. And it's always complete in Christ. So we can stop looking for an exit strategy. And focus on the source of our strength to put our feet on the floor and advance today. Remember this, that the authority of God is always accompanied by the care of God. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. 
And maybe you feel like you've been running away. Maybe you feel like you're at a point where it's time to step away or check out or whatever the case may be. Somewhere in your life you think you might be wanting to give up on God. I'm reminded of a video I saw. This was before videos filled the internet so prolifically you couldn't watch that many. But this is one of a cute bear. Oh, a little cubby bear out in the middle of a pasture next to the river. And he was so cute. And so he's out there grazing. And all of a sudden, the camera span, uh, uh, spans back. And, and, and this mountain lion comes up on this big rock. And this is really loud. Well, that little cub bear's a 100 yards or so out. But he turns around. And I mean, he immediately spins. And he begins to book it. But he is no match for this mountain lion. That mountain lion is gaining on him with every step and stride. He comes down to the river and there's this large tree that extends over the river. It's fallen over and onto a big boulder. That little cub bear runs up onto that tree, but he can't quite jump up onto the boulder. And so he's turning around and he's slipping and sliding. By this time, your whole gut is wrenched in the video. You're going, oh no, you know, what's going to happen to this little bear? Stupid video. And that mountain lion comes creeping up, you know, ears peeled back like he's about to take him. And right as he gets there, crash, the tree breaks off at the end. He hits the river and begins to float down. He goes, we've got a second wind here, people. We're on the move. And he's floating down the river and the mountain lion's running along the side. And it seems like he might have a chance to get away, but he comes up to a, a shallow spot in the river and he, he goes up on a gravel bar. And then the mountain lion knew he had him. So again, he comes right up to him. But when he gets to him this time, that young cub bear has grown up in a few minutes and he pushes off to get away back into the current. He goes a little further down and by this time, He's gone over a couple of small waterfalls and he's soaking wet, but he comes out and he's wringing himself out. And about the time he gets some water shaken off, he looks in that mountain line staring him right in the face. It's inevitable. And that cub says, I've only got one thing to do here. And so the cameras tighten on his face and he opens his mouth and he begins to, uh, he starts to roar at that mountain line and all of a sudden the camera shows the mountain line and his ears drop and he looks and just as that cub opens its mouth to roar camera spins back around his mama's called up she's standing up and she just lets it fly the mountain line leaves at that moment it's just a simple reminder of a stupid video but that we should never forget the care of God his eye is always on those who are His. Never let the blessing of God's authority be forgotten for your life. It's what God has called you to, to live under and to serve Him in obedience. Thank you.